Good morning. Now, reading the first chapter of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of the time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I'm Dave, and I'll be taking you through this passage today. Growing up, uh, my family, we had this combi van. It wasn't one of those... Uh, those cool combis you see these days, you know, for the weddings or things like that. 
Uh, this one was a bomb. It was awful. It had this, um, had this snot-colored green paint. Um, there was holes in the ceiling of the roof that were just kind of hanging down while you're driving. Uh, and the, the exterior, it was just rusting away. It was, it was a shocker. The first time uh, my sister saw it when she was a kid, and when she saw it, she said, this has got to go. It was, but it was great. I loved it. But sadly, uh, it didn't drive any better. Um, when you're in the combi, you never knew how far you'd actually get. I remember as, as we'd pull up to the lights, uh, the windows would start rattling. You'd be bracing yourself as the engine goes, bop, 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 and the whole car shakes. And, um, and I was just crossing my fingers. I wouldn't have to get out and start pushing it up a hill again. On the other hand, I had a schoolmate uh, called Hayden, and his dad, he had this, uh, this Holden Commodore V8. It was amazing. It had this um, slick exterior with these tinted windows. Um, and as you sat down, you felt like a king. There was just these nice leather seats. Uh, and the drive, the drive was amazing. It was almost like you were floating on the road. There was no pop, 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 pop as you got to the lights. So um, what, what do you think is probably the difference between these two cars and how they perform? I'd say there's, I could probably make a big list of things, um, $50,000 to start with. But if you pop the hood, you'll see the biggest difference. Uh, on the one hand, you had my combi. Uh, it had this little piddly motor that was kind of like, you know, what you'd use for a lawnmower. It wasn't great. And then Hayden's dad had this roaring V8, the same ones that would power the Clipsal 500 cars, going up to speeds of, you know, 300 k's plus. Is the engine that made all the difference to the car's performance. Well, today, we're beginning a new series in the book of Titus. As we've heard, this is written by a guy named Paul um, to another bloke, Titus. Um, he was kind of like his apprentice. And as we're going to see... Uh, the Christian life is powered by something far, far greater uh, than, than a V8 engine. It's powered by the gospel. So a little bit about Paul. Um, he was a Christian leader in the first century, and he used to go around the world um, telling people about the good news of Jesus and establishing healthy churches. And often uh, he'd take people along with him uh, to help him in this task, and also so he could be training them up in the gospel. On one of these trips uh, to Crete, he took Titus. Uh, here's a picture of Crete now. It looks pretty beautiful. I wouldn't mind going there for a holiday. But if you were living in the first century, you would avoid this place like the Black Plague. Because uh, they had a big problem. And that was the people who lived there. Uh, they were apparently those rotten people. And verse 12... Uh, Paul quotes a 6th century BC teacher from Crete who had this to say about his own people. Uh, He said, uh, Cretans, they're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul's saying in his letter, this is still true uh, when he's writing the letter. They're still like that. Uh, Plutarch, who was about 20 years old at the time this letter was written, he said this, they're no wild beasts in Crete, but they don't need any because the people are the wild beasts. Pretty harsh, right? But yeah, you might avoid this place in first century. Um, we, see, we see in the letter that uh, Paul, he's left Titus 
uh, on this island. He's gone now. And so he's writing to Titus to try and encourage him uh, and the task he's given them to establish healthy churches. If I was Titus uh, and I was looking around seeing these evil brutes all around me, I might be tempted to feel a little like I've been set up. You know, it'd be a little bit like Stephen coming up to me today and saying, look, I've got this great idea of where we could set up a church. Uh, Saturday night, we're going to go to Hindley Street outside the clubs. It's going to be great. All the drunken people there. Um, I feel like he's just having me on. And yet, despite um, what we see from the Cretans, their natural tendencies, actually a number of them have already become Christian. And Paul in this letter, you can't help but see, he's actually really optimistic. Uh, he's confident that they'll continue growing in the faith. But as we'll see, uh, the confidence, it doesn't lie uh, in the Cretans and in their ways, uh, but it lies in the gospel that they've believed in. And this brings us to our first point, uh, the gospel-powered life. Paul, in the letter, he introduces himself uh, both as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus. And by saying he's an apostle, he's making a big claim. He's actually saying Jesus himself has set him aside for a special purpose. And in verse 1, we see what this purpose is. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life. It's quite a meaty phrase. Uh, what Paul's saying is that he's been set aside by Jesus to bring about three things in God's people. And that is a faith, truth, and hope. And this is, the, this is kind of like the engine that drives the Christian life. And for the rest of the letter, uh, Paul's going to wrestle with these ideas and exactly what it looks like in practice. So it's worth for a moment us just having a look at it now. Firstly, faith. Paul wants uh, the Cretans to be putting their trust in Jesus. But from there, he wants them to keep growing in their trust in Jesus. And the reason for this is found in the second idea, knowledge of truth. But not just any knowledge. Uh, Paul wants them to know the truth that's revealed by God. And throughout this letter, we see uh, that that is the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. For instance, uh, in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Paul says, When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. People need Jesus' mercy. Uh, and God gave this to us uh, when He sent Jesus to us. It's in Him, His death on the cross, His resurrection to new life, that we can be forgiven and we can be restored into a relationship with God. I think it can be easy uh, in our culture to buy in to some of the things um, you know, that truth is a relative thing. Uh, as long as you, you're sincere and you believe in it, that's fine. Um, or that kind of idea that, you know, all religions, they're basically the same, just different pathways to the same hilltop. But Paul here, he's saying there is an absolute truth, and we see it in Jesus. 
And he wants everybody to know this truth, and not just for the sake of knowledge, but because, as we see in verse 1, as this knowledge of Jesus which leads to godliness. I think when, when we wrestle with this, it can feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable at times. Um, if you're like me, uh, you've got a tendency to separate good works and the gospel of Jesus. Um, and there's a sense in which that's right, because we need, we need to be confident that it's the gospel of Jesus that saves and nothing that we've done. But Paul's showing us here that, uh, that they're not completely separate. They actually work together. Because when we put our trust in Jesus, uh, good things will always flow from this in our lives. Uh, John Stott, and his commentary on Titus, he put it this way, Any doctrine that does not lead to godliness is manifestly bogus. I quite like that. It's pretty, tough, it's pretty toffy, but uh, just that idea that any doctrine... Uh, that doesn't lead to godliness, you can disregard it. Uh, it's, it's bogus. It's rubbish. Because godliness is a sign that God's gospel is transforming lives. The third thing that uh, Paul's showing us here is that knowing Jesus and putting our faith in Him, it means that we have hope of eternal life. That is, when we understand the realities of Jesus, who He is and what He's done, uh, it Put, it points us to the eternal hope that we have in God. If you're someone uh, here today and you're still trying to figure out who exactly Jesus is, uh, the great news is uh, that you can have this hope too. It involves turning away from your old life and putting your trust in Jesus and what He's done, what He's already done on the cross. And it's worth it because we see that this hope, it's more than just wishful thinking. As we hear in verse 2, it's something which God, who never lies, He's promised this before the beginning of time. It's with these three things, faith, truth, and hope, that we see the V8 engine that drives the Christian life. What's going to bring about profound change in those evil, brutal Cretans it's not going to be something they muster from within themselves. It'll only happen by the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus. It's why Paul is so optimistic that actually these Cretans, these Christians, they'll continue to grow in the gospel. And it's why here today in Adelaide, we can have this same confidence and optimism that God can bring about change in our family and our friends who... Um, sometimes they seem so far away from the gospel uh, that God can bring about change even in our own lives. It's the gospel uh, that gives life to hopeless people. And it's the gospel that changes hopeless lives. Continuing on with our passage then, uh, in verse 5, Paul says this to Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul wants the Titans uh, to continue to press on in the faith. And so he's left Titus in Crete now with a particular task, and that is to establish church leaders. This brings us to our second point, the need for gospel-powered leaders to encourage 
what sort of leaders uh, do we want in our church? Do we want people who are impressive speakers, who can hold a crowd with every word? Do we want strategic thinkers? Or maybe, you know, those great delegators who can really manage people well. Paul here, in the letter, he's giving us three key areas uh, that he wants uh, in his leaders. The first thing he suggests is to look at their marriage and their family life. In verse 6, we hear that an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I've heard it said uh, that the home is kind of like the training ground uh, for Christian leaders. I think that's probably a fair point, right? Because if you look at somebody, the way they manage their their own family that God's entrusted to them, uh, it's probably going to be an indicator then of how they're going to manage their church family. The second area then that Paul wants us to examine for our leaders is their conduct and their character. In verse 7, Paul says, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what's good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul here, he's giving us uh, six things that he doesn't want to see in Christian leaders, and five things that he does want to see. And that's because uh, for the leaders of God's family, he wants to see signs that they're both turning away uh, from sin, from their old lives, and they also want to see signs that they're turning towards godliness, that the gospel's at work in their lives. We don't have time to look at all of these. You'll be pleased to know. It could be a while. Uh, But for instance, we want leaders who are slow to anger. I remember hearing a story a while ago. I don't even remember who said it, but um, there's this woman once who was visiting a church for the first time. On her way, uh, while she was driving in, there's this really aggressive driver who was beeping her the whole time. Uh, So anyway, she eventually got to church feeling a little bit unsettled. And that same driver greeted her at the door. Yep, turns out that he was the minister of the church. Not a great thing. That's not what we want to see in our church leaders, right? I think yeah, you can see that too. We need people who are exhibiting signs of the gospel being at work in their lives. And here we see uh, in that example that it's actually being able to control yourself, being able to control your temper. And actually, as we're going to see throughout the next three weeks, self-control uh, is a really big thing. It's behind a lot of godliness and also uh, lack of self-control is behind a lot of godliness, godlessness. The third thing we want to see in our leaders of church uh, is we want to see them cling to the message of Jesus. We see in verse 9 that a leader of God's church must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. As we've already seen, uh, this message, uh, it's the gospel of Jesus, the great news that can be found in Jesus. And as, as we've seen, uh, we need to hold to this message because it's the only one that can actually bring about real power in lives. It's the only one that can bring hope. Paul's criteria then 
Uh, we've seen three things he wants in his leaders. And in the context of the letter, this is particularly uh, for the elders of the church, um, so people like Stephen and Scott. Uh, and I know that they want us to keep, keep them accountable to these things, uh, that they'll keep leading their families well, growing in godly conduct and character, and clinging to the message of the gospel. But the reason that we want these things for our leaders, it's not because they're the only ones who the gospel applies to or in which the gospel's at work. It's because they actually set the pattern um, of Christian belief and life for all of us. The reason we want these things for our leaders is because we want them for ourselves as well. So can I ask you before we move on, how are you going in these areas that we've just talked about? Are you clinging uh, to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, the message about Jesus? Are you clinging to all those truths despite being in a culture where there's a lot of pressure actually to, to take away some of the bits that make people uncomfortable? Does our character and our conduct uh, does it express a gospel-powered life? For instance, are we, are we demonstrating self-control in our lives, not getting drunk, uh, not being quick to get angry? Or are there times when we can actually uh, end up justifying these things? You know, for instance, oh, you know, it's just the way that I'm wired. Or, yeah, I might have a quick temper, but my whole family does, and we don't really mean it, and we get over it pretty quick. On the positive side, are we opening up our homes generously to each other? These things, they may all seem small, uh, but actually, they're all expressions of the gospel being at work in your lives. Coming back to our passage then, uh, we see that Paul's task Titus to establish uh, healthy leaders in all the different churches around Crete. People who can encourage and model the Christian faith uh, for the rest of the Cretan believers. But in verse 9, uh, we also see that these leaders, they had another important role, and that is to refute people who oppose the message about Jesus. And this brings us to our final point, the need for gospel-powered leaders to protect from false teachers. At the time this letter was written, uh, the Cretans, they were facing the threat of teachers, people who were trying to corrupt uh, the message of Jesus. And in verse 14, we see the, uh, the outcome of this, that their influence was leading to whole households being ruined, their faith just being shipwrecked. So who are these people being referred to? In verse 10, Paul says, "...for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception." especially those of the circumcision group. The circumcision group here is probably a group of Jews who have become Christians, uh, but somewhere along the way, they've tried to bring in a lot of the old Christian rituals. Um, they're unhelpfully focusing on this at the same time. And Paul shows us uh, three key ways in which they are corrupting the gospel of Jesus. The first, and verse 14 we see that their focus was on human commands rather than on the truth from God. Secondly, 
and they have a false understanding of godliness. These teachers thought uh, that by their teaching, by their rituals, they could make themselves right with God. But as we've seen, real change, it only happens through Jesus. And so thirdly, and not surprisingly, uh, Paul shows us that this false teaching, it fails. It fails to bring about any change in their lives. In verse 16, Paul says this, They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They're detestable, disobedient. They're unfit for doing anything good. These people, they claim to know God, but they don't. And we can see that. Uh, We can see that through their outcome, uh, through their behavior. Because their so-called knowledge of God, it was leading to godless living. And so as a result, Paul's saying that they're unfit. Uh, They're unfit for doing anything good. Although in Adelaide today, we're in a very different situation from first century Crete. Probably a good thing, although I can see a few beasts as I walk around. No, not really. Um, But the threat of false teachers is still very much among us. Um, Growing up, I went to an Anglican school. Uh, We had a chaplain there who was ordained. um, And he was a false teacher. Each week, uh, he'd teach about how being a Christian, uh, it's really about doing good works. If you do good works, you'll get to heaven. That was it. At Easter, um, he didn't focus on Jesus. What he did focus on was what you could give up. Uh, if you gave up chocolate, that was a great thing. Just give up something. Uh, I remember one time, he invited a Muslim into our service uh, just to teach about how being a Muslim and being a Christian, they were basically the same thing. Considering what Paul's just talked about, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not hard to see uh, that this guy was a false teacher. His teaching it was based on human commands. His solution to problems, it was focused on the self, giving something up, rather than focusing on what God and what he's done. And so as a result, his teaching, it was powerless and it was hopeless. And so, sadly, as a result of, of this guy, thousands of kids uh, all across Adelaide, they now think that Christianity is about giving things up, and that's it. They think that it's no different from being a Muslim, and, um, and you can do it just by being a good person. Later, this same guy, uh, he, was, he was suspended uh, because uh, he was being unfaithful. He had a sexual relationship with a woman who he wasn't married to. It was clear uh, from his teaching, from his actions, uh, that he had abandoned the truth. So how are we going to guard ourselves from these false teachers? How are we going to keep pressing on in the Christian life? For starters, we need to do what we're doing right now. We need to keep meeting together. We need to keep... uh, getting under God's word, hearing what he has to say and reminding each other of the power of the gospel, both what it is and what it isn't. And today Paul's saying that essential to this, 
as to have church leaders who are faithful and godly. And so a couple of things for us to finish on then, uh, just to consider. Firstly, do we have a culture that promotes leadership? I reckon as Aussies, we're pretty bad at this, generally. Uh, we don't aspire to lead. And we, we tend to um, resent people who do lead sometimes. But here at Modbury, we have to be countercultural. Uh, we have to be people who are biblical in our attitude to leaders. Because we want a church that's sold on the idea of good leadership and gets behind our leaders. If we do value leadership then, what sort of leaders do we want? Do we want preachers who are witty, engaging, charismatic? Or preachers who will teach the gospel? Do we want pastors uh, who will be our best mates, always free for a cuppa, sensitive, insightful? Or do we want people... Uh, do you want people who urge us on in the gospel and protect us from false teachers? At Modbury, uh, I think we've got a real privilege of the leadership that we have. Uh, firstly, in Scott and Stephen. Uh, they're faithful men who teach us the gospel every week and have a desire for us to keep growing in that. And you also see the gospel at work in their lives and their conduct and their attitudes in their family and how they cling uh, to the message of the gospel. Let's make sure that we keep honouring uh, these people and keep allowing them to actually lead us, even speak into our lives. But it's not just Scott and Stephen, as we heard in the kids' talk. At Modbury, at Modbury we're so blessed to have leadership on a range of fronts. We've got our community group leaders, uh, we've, we've got a leadership team, we've got our kids and youth leaders, and that's just to name a few. If you're someone who leads in these roles, keep holding on to the truth of the gospel as you're seeking to live godly lives. And for the rest of us, let's make sure that we get behind these people, holding them uh, to a high standard, but also encouraging and supporting them as they keep pressing on. Something else to consider? Are we a church that's committed to developing and discipling church leaders? There are many ways we can show this kind of commitment. I think what it means is that we'll have a culture that wants to build up many Tituses, to train up many Tituses. Paul trained up Titus in the gospel, and then he wanted Titus to do the same in Crete and many other places. Maddie and I, we've been doing a ministry apprenticeship, we call it MAP, for the last couple of years here. Uh, and many of you guys have invested uh, in our lives, and we're so thankful for your prayer uh, and your training that we've received. And so going through this process, I've, I can see that it's a big investment uh, for everyone um, to develop gospel leaders as an intense thing. For the church, it takes time, energy, heaps of patience, uh, a great loving commitment especially if you're dealing with slow learners uh, like maybe me. Um, <laughs> another thing, as many of you would know, uh, much of the donations uh, to church here from our members, um, they go towards taking on leaders. So last year, uh, we took on Scott, and God willing, uh, halfway through next year, he's going to plant a whole new church 
and the northeast. And next year, a guy named Coops and his family, they're going to join us here at Modbury. Just think about the impact uh, we can have in the northeast. Isn't it such a great thing that we can be financial partners uh, in raising up more gospel leaders? Well, let's come back to where we began then, back to my combi van. I can't remember our dad ever looking after my combi, our combi. Um, that's probably fair enough too. It was pretty rubbish. Um, but Hayden's dad, on the other hand, he knew that his car had the goods. So he looked after it. Part of that was taking it to the mechanic regularly. Every Christian, they've been converted by the power of the gospel, by what Jesus has done and nothing else. And that gospel, it's like the engine that keeps powering and energizing the Christian life. In that sense, we're all drivers. And we want to be as skilled as we can in understanding the gospel engine uh, engine, and knowing how to uh, use it to navigate life and live a life that's empowered by it. But in God's great uh, wisdom, uh, he says we're to set aside uh, pastors, elders, who are a little bit like mechanics. They're people who are tasked with teaching and applying the gospel, keeping it sharp and clear, so we can... Uh, keep being faithful to it uh, and be protected from error. A healthy congregation, it's got both elders and members who are working together in understanding the gospel truths so we can keep living gospel-powered lives. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Dear God, We thank you for how, in Jesus, you revealed to us the greatest truths. That in him, we can be your children in the hope of eternal life. We thank you for the leaders. You've blessed us here at Modbury, for Stephen and Scott, and also for the many other faithful leaders. Thank you for how you're at work through these leaders to encourage uh, all of us in the gospel, but also to guard us from people who corrupt your message of hope. And we ask for all of us uh, that you'll be helping us to cling to the gospel and living a life that's powered by the gospel. Amen.